What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode three of From the Beginning. I'm your host, Chris Casella, and today I sat down with Mike Wan, who is currently the commissioner of the LPGA. Mike's resume also includes titles like Director of Marketing at Procter & Gamble, Vice President at Wilson Sporting Goods Company, Executive Vice President at TaylorMade Golf, and President and CEO of Mission iTech Hockey. This episode focuses a little bit more on Mike's career path rather than his journey from childhood forward, and it's full of lessons regarding how to make difficult decisions, the importance of stepping outside your comfort zone, and much more. As always, I loved every minute of this conversation, and I feel extremely grateful to be able to sit down with someone of Mike's stature in only my third episode of this podcast. I really hope you guys get as much out of this interview as I did. And with that, here is the story of Mike Wan from the very beginning. Mike Wan, very happy to have you on the show. I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're a busy guy, so so thanks for sitting down with me today. I appreciate you making making time for me as well. Of course. Yeah, so if you want to just start off and kind of introduce yourself, uh, tell everybody who you are, what it is that you do. Yeah, so I'm Mike Wan. I'm the commissioner of the LPGA. I've been doing this for about 11 years. Awesome. So for people who might not know, maybe if you could just kind of take us through um, a typical day in your position or talk about some of your major responsibilities. I know it might be difficult to narrow it down, but. Yeah. So in sports, we use the term commissioner kind of instead of CEO, because you kind of run a run a sport or a league. Um, so in my case, the LPGA, Ladies Professional Golf Association, is made up really of three key components. We, we own and run tours. So women's professional golf tours. We have the LPGA tour, which most people have heard of. We have the Symmetra tour, which which is the tour, kind of the developing tour just below the LPGA here in America, where players go try to graduate to the LPGA. We have the Ladies European Tour over in Europe, and then the Access Tour underneath that in Europe. So two tours in Europe, two tours based here in America, uh, all of them pretty global, not in, in terms of uh, who plays and where we play. We play all around the world. On the LPGA, we play, I think, in 17 countries, and we're televised, we're televised every week. And 165 countries. So we're pretty global sport. Outside of tours, kind of the second part is teachers. So I think of female golf teaching professionals that have learned their trade and have gotten their credits and accreditation through the LPGA. So we have about 2,000 teachers, female teachers at clubs that you know you may know or go to yourself, maybe getting a lesson from an LPGA teacher. Uh, so that's the second part. And then the third part is, is, is all under the LPGA Foundation or our charity arm. And um, the biggest piece of our charity arm is called LPGA USGA Girls Golf. It's an event. It's a program we run with the United States Golf Association, all designed to get young girls introduced to the game in, a, in an all-girl environment. And we introduced about 100,000 girls, you know, to this game. And, um, uh, and quite, I'm really proud to say the fastest growing segment of golf is girls under the age of 16, which for 100 years nobody could have said. We also have an amateur association in our foundations, about 13,000 women that are connected to the LPGA. They're amateur golfers who just want to be connected through women's golf. And we have events for them and playing. We have a scholarship program. We have an assistance program. So um, those are the three pieces, tours, teachers, uh, and our foundation and giving back charities. Yeah, that's a lot. A lot to look over all at once. Um, and I know, so you started in your position in January of 2010. So it's been about 10 years uh, coming up on 11. And as you kind of look back on your career and uh, specifically as commissioner of the LPGA, what do you think has been the biggest challenge if you had to highlight one or two key things since you started? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I'm just about to finish my 11th season as commissioner. And it's amazing how fast that goes. Still feel like a rookie, still making a lot of rookie mistakes, I'm sure. But um, really, when I started back in 2010, the LPGA was at this kind of precarious position. There was two major uh, trends going on. Trend number one was um, the LPJ was really going global. And I always say to people, going global makes for a great PowerPoint slide in a board meeting. It sounds really cool. You're going to take your brand all over the world and new fans and new websites and new TV markets. Um, but then you actually have to actually physically go global. And going global is scary. It's homesick. It's making mistakes. It's not understanding different cultures. So the LPJ was right in the beginning phases of players small over the world, starting to generate sponsorship interest from all over the world, borderline uh, whether or not they could sell their TV all over the world. So at the, I always tell people going global is like, uh, is like going through a tunnel on a train. In the first 10 or 15 seconds, it gets really dark really fast. 
and every part of your body tells you to turn around and go back because you can't see what's in front of you. The other side of the tunnel is where you're trying to get to. And, and um, like, like the, the train, if you just hang in there, you'll get to the other side and it's brighter and better. But we were sort of in that early phases and, and a lot of people at the LPGA were saying, let's go back. Let's go back to an all-American tour that just played in America. Let's not worry about the world. So that was one trend. The second trend is we were in the middle of a, a significant North American recession back in 2008, 9, and 10. So you had a lot of companies just not spending money and certainly not spending money on corporate hospitality events because nobody would come to your hospitality events. Everybody was, their stock was down, their company sizes were being laid off. And um, so it was a difficult time to sell. Let's get a bunch of your vendors and customers together and play some golf. It, it probably wasn't socially correct to say, I just sponsored an event in Hawaii with the LPJ. Do you want to come out for a few days? So um, those two things were happening when I got there. So if I look back, I mean, today, if you say, what's my most challenging thing, it's very different than 2010. In 2010, um, I had taken a few brands global. So it was really making, having people believe and see what the other side of this tunnel was like and why we shouldn't turn back. Uh, and, the, and the second part was um, getting my board of directors at the LPGA to realize that in these tough economic times, we need to think more like an investment bank and less like a tour, meaning we need to take money out of our savings account and help our customers that were struggling and start new events and, and bridge the gap for our tournament owners that weren't making any money. Because if we could keep them all viable and engaged long term, they'll be a better day. But I think when I joined, the LPGA was kind of going the different direction. They were concerned about their own business. So they were charging more and, and making it tougher on sponsors. So um, they had just lost about a third of their total tournaments when I became commissioner. And so you had this sort of struggle between the players, the leadership, and the sponsors. And so um, we just had to get back to some basic trust and have a, have a plan that we believed in. And so it seems like forever ago, and you know, we're so far past that today, but that's what we were facing back at the end of 2009. Yeah. And that's honestly, that's one of my favorite parts of these interviews is hearing the kind of behind the scenes, right? Everything that goes on that people don't see because when people read articles or um, they look into, you know, what does the chair or the commissioner of the LPGA do? They'll see these great articles written about some maybe different launches or um, these highlighting of, of key events, but all the stuff behind the scenes where you kind of go through these challenges and you have to think critically and come up with ideas. Honestly, more than anything, you just have to have new ideas and new ways of, of facing these challenges. And that's the kind of stuff that I really enjoy. It's funny, Chris, when I, uh, when I got the job offer back at the end of 2009, if I was being honest with you, I said to the board, I'm not sure you have the right guy. And they said, well, why would you say that? I said, listen, I, there's nothing about being the commissioner of the LPGA that I have experience in. I haven't run a league. I didn't grow up as a lawyer. I have never sold TV rights all around the world. Um, I play golf, but I'm certainly not a professional golf level. Um, I have a golf teacher, but I've never actually led golf teachers. So, uh, and I have three boys. I don't even have a little girl. So, I mean, I'm not even sure what it means to, uh, you know, to be around 2,000 girls. So um, it was funny. They said, well, what, what part of being commissioner would you be comfortable in? And I said, well, there will be one part. Sitting across the table from a chief marketing officer or a CEO or a CFO and asking them to spend $4 million a year with us on a tournament and how that's going to work. Like I've been that guy my whole life. And I started at Procter & Gamble and I became a CMO and a CEO. And so I said, I've written checks to sport, sports companies and businesses and leagues and teams my whole life. And I know what it feels like to sit in a board and try to justify how did you spend $5 million on NASCAR and why do you believe that's good for our brand? And tell me why. A hundred million dollar investment in the Yankees will grow Adidas. I mean, those I've been in those meetings, so I said I'm really comfortable in that environment because that's the environment I come from. And then, in fairness to the board, the board said, "Mike, we have a lot of people that know how to set up a golf tournament. We have a lot of people that know how to deal with TV cameras and selling international rights. We don't have many people in the room that knows what it feels like to be a sponsor, and we feel we feel naked there that we don't really have that understanding. So, what you just described is why we're interested in you." as LPGA commissioner, and it was strange. So to your point, I do spend 40% of my time probably talking to the customers that we either have or don't have about being part of the LPGA. A good chunk of my time is based on TV, you know, because we're, we're not only trying to get ourselves televised every week here in the U.S., but what you see in the U.S. is also broadcast in 165 countries. So we have 165 partners that have their own TV challenges, but that's, that's real revenue, as you can imagine. Um, right. And then between the teachers and the foundation and all some of the other work, that's probably the other, you know, 30 or 40%. So, um, yeah, the, the big bulk of it is, you know, my, the mission of the LPJ is to help women pursue their dreams through the game of golf. So if I'm going to help women pursue their dreams, 
I've got to actually provide those opportunities, finance those opportunities, and then make sure those opportunities are better for, for their daughters and their daughter's daughters. Yeah. And it's really interesting. I think the point you made about maybe not feeling entirely prepared for the position is something that people face to a lot of different degrees, right? Whether it's you're coming out of college or you're just pivoting in your career path in your mid forties or your you know late sixties, whatever it is. Um, it's something that a lot of people face. So when you're kind of, when you think back and you're, you're kind of reflecting now on how you overcame those challenges initially, and you looked and you said, I, I've never run or been in charge of a league. I don't have daughters. So maybe you don't have the right guy. When you started your position, what did you do to kind of take on those challenges and to overcome them? Well, I, had, I did kind of a unique thing when I became the commissioner. I, I asked for 100 days of no decision making, which is strange. You know, a company recruits you, goes and finds you, a board pays you. And my first thing is, hey, guys, I'm not going to make any decision for 100 days. I'm, um, I'm a pretty comfortable talker, as you can probably already imagine. And I'm definitely a yeah. quick thinker. Um, but when you have those two when you have those two strengths, listening usually doesn't come with them, right? If you talk a lot and you think pretty fast, you generally don't you aren't aren't a great listener. And I've known that since I was you know fourteen. So I always in my career build in um, what I call listening boundaries, which is you know when all I get to do is listen. So I said to the board and to the executive team that I that I was first meeting for the next hundred days, I'm going to meet all of you. You can tell me about all your challenges. I really want to know what we're challenging with. But if you ask me, should we go right or left or spend money, don't spend money, do this event, don't do that event, I'm not going to answer those for 100 days. And the reason was I was walking into the LPG. I had these eight ideas on, you know, on a piece of paper, these eight strategies for success. And I shared them with the board and I said, here's the problem. Four of them are wrong. I'm just not sure which four. Uh, but I know four of them are wrong. If I bet 50%, that's an incredible batting rate. But I feel pretty strong about all of them. Like I could argue with you till I'm blue in the face that all eight are right. And because of my position and because I'm the new commissioner, most people won't argue against me if I stand up and say, these are the eight ideas, even if they know I'm wrong. If you give me 100 days to kind of assess my own ideas and really listen, two things will happen. One is I'm going to figure out which four or five don't belong on the page. And two is even the ones I keep, I'm going to build in the words, the ideas, and the concepts of the people who told me about it because people will hear their ideas in my vision if I have time to listen to their vision. And what I didn't realize, and which is definitely true now, hindsight 2020, is a job like commissioner, I always tell people it's a lot more like a congressman than a CEO. I've I literally have 10,000 members in terms of current members and former players. Most of those players have a bigger social following than I do, right? I mean, people find Nancy Lopez or Annika Sorenstam or Paula Creamer more interesting than Mike Wan for all kinds of obvious and truthful reasons. <laughs> so if I go to the podium and say, here's the direction the LPGA is going, and Annika Sorenstam says, well, that's silly. That's a better story than the, the direction I said we were going. So like a congressman, I could go up and say, here's what I believe the, the state should be focused on. And if the voters disagree, you're not going to be talking on the podium very long. So those hundred days gave me an opportunity to listen to my members, not just members of LPJ, but I remember taking calls from Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer and CBS and NBC executives and a lot of former uh, sponsors, people that had been sponsors of the LPJ, but had left. And those are the people you really have to talk to is, is dissatisfied customers. Um, partners from around the world, uh, sports agencies that ran tournaments but didn't run them for the LPGA. So in those first 100 years, I got this overwhelming education uh, for 100 days. And after those 100 days, we had a staff meeting. And starting in that staff meeting, I introduced um, the five things we called the yardage book. You know, it was, literally, it was literally a book you put in your back pocket, and you opened it up, and there was five things. And the good news is those five things were so embedded in what I'd heard in the first 100 years days and most people in the room at least at some point when I was walking through this five said he got that for me now whether or not I did or not didn't matter but they all felt like I, I had his ear I really told him what I thought was missing now um, doesn't mean everybody loved those five things I'm sure there was people that you know went home and said to their spouse this guy's crazy um, but they knew that they but they knew that they were educated decisions not just decisions of some outside consultant walking in in three days and making some decisions so I had to force myself to listen and then once you force yourself to listen uh, that the voice of the people will come through your direction. Absolutely. that, And that's great insight. And there are a couple of points there just in terms of um, being able to create a team atmosphere and making people feel heard and equal um, in their positions. And th that's stuff that I, I read about before we actually sat down and I do want to touch on those. Um, but another point that you brought up was your leadership in other positions, whether it be P&G or I, I think the next one was Wilson Sporting Goods and then TaylorMade and Mission iTech and the whole nine yards. And I want to let you talk about those, but I want to take this opportunity to kind of take a step back and 
go back to the beginning of your story. And I remember reading that you've been involved in golf, whether it was cutting greens or caddying when you were younger uh, to make some extra money. But I kind of just want to, I want to give you the opportunity now to go back and, and start with your childhood and talk about the, the journey from the beginning to end and, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. I mean, if, if I had a book written about me, it would probably be, it would probably be called undecided major. Um, I think the best part of my career was I have some buddies that I went to college with who knew exactly what they were going to be when they were 40. And they became that. And most of them are retired now because they were bored, silly. I had no idea what I wanted to be. Still don't. I mean, I, I give a lot of talks to college age kids and our internship programs, our new hires and, and a lot of different sports organizations. And I always say, stay undecided as long as you can. And I mean into your 50s, not, not when you're 17 to 22. Because the best part of most top executives' journey was the path they never saw coming. And people that know exactly where they want to be at 45 when they're 20, they only choose the things that in their mind will lead to that 45 path, right? So I got a lot of my buddies that had some really unique opportunities to either go work overseas, work outside their business, do something completely different. And they'd say, yeah, I'm not going to do this, Mike, because it doesn't lead to where I want to get. And sometimes where you want to get is... Um, is going to change in time. Certainly that I didn't go to school to be a commissioner. I didn't, didn't go to class of commissionership. And I, right. the whole path of, of undecided has been the best part. If you Back to your original question. I mean, I grew up in Chicago, um, moved to California, you know, when I was in um, elementary school, and then moved uh, back to Chicago um, for most of, you know, second grade to sophomore year in high school. Uh, and then when I was a sophomore in high school, my dad uh, moved the family to Cincinnati. I'll never forget that because I didn't talk to my dad for about six months. I mean, that's, I remember saying to my dad, who moves their kids in the middle of high school? Who does that? Like, I'm a, I'm a sports guy, right? I'm, I feel really comfortable in my environment. I have all my friends. And in my, at 16 years of age, you're going to, like, throw all that into jeopardy. Of course, turned out to be one of the greatest moves. I moved to a smaller school, so I was a bigger fish in a smaller pond and great, you know, great athletic opportunities and academic opportunities. I love Cincinnati, Ohio, where we moved. That's how I found Miami of Ohio, where I went to school. But I'd never tell my dad that and he won't listen to your podcast. So that's good. He'll still, he'll still think. But the funny thing is, you know, at age 45, I moved my three boys, two of which were in high school from California to Florida for this job. So be careful what you, um, what you tell your, your parents growing up. And uh, yeah, I was a, I was a football player and a, and a baseball player, but I, um, when I was, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was in high school. And I, one of my five football visits as a quarterback was Miami of Ohio. And I should have known when I went to the Miami Ohio visit, you know, we went to a football game, you meet the coaches and you get a tour of the campus and the defensive uh, linebacker coach was assigned to me and I'm a quarterback. So I remember my dad thinking that was strange, but I was just thinking, oh, they probably just divide them up. But it was pretty cool. I did not get a scholarship offer at Miami, but I thought, you know what? I, I mean, I loved the school from the minute I walked on and I went on, I went to school to be a sportscaster and I obviously have the pace of conversation for that job. Yeah, I, I lasted about six months as a sportscaster and uh, I just didn't find the communication major challenging enough. It probably would have been if I stayed with it. So I moved in to become an economics and finance major. I thought that would be stuff that would really be hard to figure out. And it probably was. Yeah. Um, and so it was, you know, there's a great example of, I didn't want to be a banker. I was certainly not going to be an economics or, you know, a professor. Um, I clearly had moved away from being so when I graduated from college, what I was going to do for a living was an open-ended question. I had no idea. Right. Stumbled into a Procter & Gamble brand management, like wine and cheese night. And the guy got up at the podium and talked about his job. And I thought, that guy doesn't know what he wants to be either. Like he does a little bit of everything and a lot of nothing, you know. He's sort yeah. of a marketing guy. He's sort of a manufacturing guy. But he's learning about business and a brand. But he's really kind of a jack of all trades. And I remember thinking, maybe I found the place where being undecided is not that big of a deal. And um, when I got the offer to go to Procter and Gamble, I remember the guy was going to be give me the offer, and I said, "Listen, sir, I really appreciate this, but I'm really not sure what I want to do for for my living. So I'm going to go back to graduate school." And he said, "Why don't you come to P and G for a couple of years? It'll probably help you get into better graduate schools. You have a better base, and then you know go on from there. It'll be a good background." And I said, "That's great. I mean, if you're cool with that, I'll come to P and G for two years, and then I'll go to graduate school." He said, "I think that's a great plan." You know, and of course, I stayed for ten years and never went to graduate school. I think he <laughs> knew what I did, which is I was about to get my graduate degree in Cincinnati, right. Ohio, at Procter and Gamble, but I was young and didn't know that. And uh, luckily, sometimes being young, not knowing, and staying undecided is is how good stuff happens. Yeah, without a doubt. And again, um, I think it's something that a lot of people face. And I think that's a good lesson for people to learn, especially people who are closer to my age or who are going through their college career. 
completely unaware of where they want to end up and maybe even feeling a little bit lost. Hearing the stories of people who have ended up in successful positions talk about how they still don't know exactly what they want to do and the fact that everybody's kind of figuring it out as they go, I think is something that is it's really important for people to hear. If you lined up 100 CEOs and said, everybody take one step forward to the people who knew you'd be exactly where you are now when you were 20, nobody would step forward. Nobody. There's nobody who gets to that level of success um, had this plan and that's what they were going to do and every choice they made along the way. I mean, how many lawyers are currently, you know, agents or CEOs when they went to school to be a lawyer, you know, and, and vice versa. So, um, yeah, I would just, I tell my kids this same thing all the time as they were going through school because they'd go, geez, I just don't know what I want to be. And I kept saying, perfect. And it would drive them crazy. But I'd say, you know, the, right. the good news is if you don't know what you want to be, when something really interesting comes along, you'll just do it because what else are you going to do? And like I said, you know, when I was at Procter & Gamble, I was successful at Procter & Gamble for 10 years. And I had a chance to go work at Wilson Sporting Goods in the golf ball and golf glove business. And the P&G people thought I was nuts. Like, who leaves P&G to go work for Wilson Sporting Goods? You're leaving a Fortune 12 company to a tiny little business. And the golf, golf is what you do on the weekends, not what you do during the week. And, and I remember just thinking to myself, you know, their perspective of where they want to be when they're 60 and mine and their, 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 their definition of success is so different than mine. I've got to, you know, I've got to create my own path. And so, yeah, the really kind of cool thing is, you know, most of the best stuff that's happened to me in business wasn't planned. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it, to your point, it, it keeps, it makes people almost close-minded, right? They're not it open does. to new opportunities. Yeah. And if they have an idea of where they want to be when they're 65 years old and they're kind of locked in on that idea, then they're not going to be open to things that actually will challenge them and help them grow and present new opportunities for them. And just before we, we move on to the next kind of career phase, just thinking back to your career in, or your high school career of sports and you yeah. played football and you played baseball. And I know this is kind of where I'll, maybe I'll tie in the lessons that I read about where you think that creating a team atmosphere is really important in business. And like the first day you showed up to your position as the commissioner of the LPGA, you tore your sign out in the parking lot that had an assigned spot. Um, and the lesson there was just that everybody's on an equal playing field. So when you think back to your career as a quarterback and a baseball player, what lessons did you take from sports? You know, I know it's, it, it's all the way yeah. back in high school, but it, it's actually started farther back. It's farther back for me. I mean, it's uh, when I was nine years old, I talked my parents into signing me up for Pop Warner football and it was a 10 to 12 year old league. And um, so what they, I mean, that was back when you didn't have to have a birth certificate and everything that'd be perfect. So I was there as a nine year old and I was small and skinny and slow and, you know, everything that makes you not successful in football. And um, so when I was a young kid playing pop corner football, we would finish a practice and then you sit there and play catch until your parents would come pick you up. So I'd been playing practicing for about a week and my dad said, Hey son, why don't you stay here? I'm going to go talk to the coach a second. So like most nine-year-olds, I'm totally listening to what he's saying to the coach while I'm playing catch, acting like I'm not listening. And my dad says, coach, you know, you, Mike's been here for about a week. This is his first experience with football. What do you think? And so you know, I'm locked down. And I remember the coach saying, well, Mr. One, I know he's young. Um, but he's pretty small, even for his age. So, you know, he, he certainly couldn't handle the line of scrimmage on offense or defense. And my dad said, yeah, that probably makes sense. And they said, even though he's small, he's he's kind of surprisingly slow, which was true. And um, <laughs> so I'm not really sure he's a running back or a receiver either. And I'll never forget, my dad said, should we wait a year and come back? And, of course, I'm thinking, come on, Dad, it's five seconds. You just bailed on me for – and the coach said, Mr. Juan, here's the weird thing. I've never met a kid who's learned the offense in one week before, but he knows what everybody does on every call and every play. He's pretty comfortable telling other kids what to do, even though he's younger. And um, so he said, we're going to try him at quarterback and see how that works out. So we used to have this deal, my dad and I, where we'd lay down at night and he would say, best part about your day, worst part about your day, and the one thing you'd do different, just to get us talking before we'd go to bed. So I knew he was coming that night. So he comes into my bed and he goes, best part about the day. And of course, I just start crying. You know, the coach thinks I'm terrible. He's, I'm, I'm slow. I'm small. You thought I should take a year off. And so I just start, you know, screaming at my dad. And so my dad let me get it out of my system. He said, Mike, uh, I don't think you understood what just happened in that conversation. But I think if you can understand what happened in that conversation, it's going to be good for you for the rest of your life. And he said, your coach just said, there's a lot of talented players on the team. And athletically, they're probably better at their position than you may be at yours. But he needs somebody to understand the big picture and figure out how to get the ball out of their hands and into a better athlete's hands as fast as possible on each play. And that's not easy to do because most people want the ball and they just want the ball all the time. So he said, um, this is a pretty good life lesson, which is you surround yourself by better athletes, figure out a good play, and the play doesn't have the ball in your hand at the end. 
then it's probably going to be a pretty good run. Um, I played quarterback until I was 21 years old at Miami of Ohio until, until they posted the first depth chart at Miami of Ohio. And I realized they didn't feel about the same potential that I felt about my potential. But, um, and I've, 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 I've said this, I actually said this in an interview when I was interviewing for the LPJ 12 years ago. I'm the same nine-year-old quarterback at 55 uh, that I was then. I'm still not the best athlete in the room. I'm never walk into a room and think to myself, I'm the smartest guy in the room. I've never had that feeling. I mean, smart people probably do. I don't. Um, but I'm pretty good at getting the smart people in the room, generally that are smarter than me. I'm pretty good at making sure the ball's not in my hands very long. I might call the play. I might know exactly what everyone's going to have to do on the play. But the play rarely has the ball in my hands to get over the end zone. And um, if I'm being honest with you, I learned that at 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. And uh, while I hated it at 9 and 10, I actually like it at 55 because I get to surround myself with really good talent. And because I think of business as a team sport, um, every team I was ever, ever on, everybody had nicknames and we knew each other. And I, I trusted that guy. They trusted me. Um, I remember I was, I was, uh, had a meeting with Condoleezza Rice one time at her office in Stanford. And there was a, something on the, I don't know if it was on the bookshelf or something she said, but she said, nothing I learned about leadership happened in a classroom. She said, I learned a lot of good stuff in classrooms. Um, and it's all the things I, I, I rely on today, but nothing about leading my peers. Like the only way you learn how to lead your peers is to lead your peers. And because we were talking about a, a, a women's development program through golf, and she just said, like, if it's all going to be sitting in a classroom with slides, no one learns how to lead that way. And I really learned how to lead by being a very average quarterback on pretty good teams. And I think I'm still a pretty average quarterback on a really good team. And, um, it served me well. I'm not, I don't say that to be self-deprecating or to say, you know, just make you think that I'm a modest guy. That's just a fact. And my teammates would tell you um, that uh, Mike's comfortable with the ball, um, but he doesn't, get, he, doesn't, he doesn't carry it as long as you'd think. And he's real comfortable bringing in superstar talent all around him. And any one of my direct reports could be at least as good a commissioner as me. And, and I'm proud of that. Yeah. And I think that, lesson is even apparent when you think back to your story about um, how you didn't make a decision for 100 days when you first took the position and you wanted to make sure that everybody on your team was heard and that they felt a part of those decisions. So I think that lesson, I mean, even in the short time that we've been talking, I've been able to see that kind of shine through in the way that you, um, the way that you lead your team. So that's really, that's great to hear. I appreciate you sharing. There's something, there's something pretty collegial too about everybody having nicknames and like on my phone, if you told me to call the head of PR, I wouldn't, I'd have to think for a second about her real name. But if I type Minnie in, which is her nickname, Minnie comes up and all of her contact information, my, uh, my assistant Candace kind of gets a kick out of it. Cause when I write a note, I'll say like, send this to goose and make sure you copy Thurston. And you know, other <laughs> people walk by like who's goose and who's Thurston. But my secretary has like a visible glossary of who's everybody's name is but i do think there's something um there's something more fun about that and we are on a team you know i mean we're you know somebody's hanging a scorecard on how we're doing you know and the bottom line is you uh, not one person can take us to victory so it's uh, there's a lot of the, and if you're going to have assigned parking and bigger offices and you know uh, executive lunch rooms um the team concept just goes away pretty fast so you know assigned parking spots are silly for a company our size yeah. And in that same article, I think it said that you have introduced some of your teammates at, at, by their nicknames to even people like title sponsors and people outside the company who come in. And I think that's great. To be honest with you, usually when I do that, it's because I can't remember their real name. And I don't mean that <laughs> as a bad way, but I, I just know them so much. And generally, their nickname is reflective of either something we went through together or something unique about their background that I want to remember. And so, um, you know, when I, when I introduce somebody or even when I think about that person, um, it's just a reminder of, you know, one of the people who works for me, she's a, she's a superstar. I call her Goose because I remember in Top Gun when he's a talk to me, Goose, like, you know, when, they're, when you're really in combat, you want to yeah. hear, whose voice do you want to hear? I want to hear, her name's Ricky. I want to hear Ricky's voice. You know, so when we're walking into a meeting, I'll say, talk to me, Goose. And she'll say, these guys are really struggling with it. Like, she knows exactly what I mean. Like, you know, we're going into combat and you need me and we're going we're gonna to co-pilot our way through this. So when I think about Goose, I think about a co-pilot that you, you really put your trust in. And so when I introduce her as Goose, it's just because she's my co-pilot. And if she had to fly and I had to sit in the backseat or vice versa, it wouldn't matter. Right. Yeah. And that, honestly, that makes the entire dynamic when you go to work every day and you're around the same people every day, that makes the entire dynamic more fun and more personal. And I think there's just a lot of benefits to that, that um, even beyond the surface that probably make people feel a lot closer. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, 
people will say like we're a family business. And I always say to people, every business is a family business. It's just what kind of family are you part of? How dysfunctional is it? Because yeah. if you're going to spend 60 hours a week with the same people and you don't think they're part of your inner family, you're kidding yourself. Like it's just, if you're going to work five, six days a week and you're working long hours, um, that's part of your family. So either, you know, decide what kind of family you want to have or change families. But, um, you know, I've been a part of dysfunctional families in business and uh, they're tough. You know, that's just really not much fun. But I mean, if you can think about your employees, like if you, if you treat your employee the same way you treat your kids, meaning sometimes I walk into my employee's office and say, you need to go home. Like you've been here a lot and you yeah. got kids like you got to go home and be a parent. Um, I would say that to my boys if they were working too hard and weren't spending time with their family. So, um, you know, why wouldn't I say that to the people that I trust in my in my business life? Yeah, absolutely. And again, th- there's a lot of other things that um, I did want to get to. So if we just kind of go back and we think about your tenure at Procter and Gamble, I think you said you were there for 10 years. Yeah. Um, an opportunity came up at Wilson and I know you, again, you worked at TaylorMade as well. Mission iTech, there's a lot more to your career. Um, if you just kind of want to walk us through starting with that decision to leave Procter and Gamble and go to Wilson and, and so on, uh, that'd be great. Like a lot of things in my life, the, um, the best things came out of, um, mistakes. So, um, and I don't mean mistakes, just things that other people would look at and go, you did what? And it led to something better. So in my case, when I was at Procter & Gamble, I was about 28 years old. And um, one of our senior leaders in sales had left and started a company with a couple other guys. Uh, they started it in Tampa. They went public. It made a bunch of money. And he called me and flew me down to Tampa and offered me a job as um, national sales manager and director of marketing or something. I forget. It was a great title. I was 28 years old, right? It had a signing bonus, which I remember thinking only athletes have signing bonuses. There was a car allowance. I remember thinking, you're going to pay me to drive the car (laughs) of my choice. And it was in Tampa. I lived in Cincinnati. So no offense to Cincinnati, but Tampa's Tampa. And I was down there in January thinking, it's 77 degrees here. And um, so I flew home to tell my wife the great news. We were moving to Tampa. She was pregnant with our first. Took her out to dinner. Said, let me tell you about this thing. And of course, like every 28-year-old, what I told her about my income, my signing bonus, my car allowance. The, the office was all glass. And I had an all-glass office on the corner. And what Tampa was like. And, you know, I rambled on for 25 minutes. And at the end, she just looked at me and she said, I'm, I'm disappointed in you. I'm like, disappointed? I mean, didn't you hear what I just said? Because I heard everything you said. But you haven't told me what the company is, what they do. What are the people like you're going to? And are you excited and passionate about what you're trying to achieve at the company? And I remember getting like sweaty and uncomfortable because, you know, as most husbands do when their wife, what wife is right. I remember thinking, she's right. I know she's right. She knows she's right. Uh, but I spent the next hour trying to argue with her that she was wrong. But I knew <laughs> the minute she said it that there was nothing about that company that excited me. There was nothing about the people, nothing against the people. Just it wasn't people that I knew and were passionate about. It certainly wasn't a business I was passionate about. There was nothing. And as she, as she said to me, at some point, you have to close your checkbook and open your briefcase. And you better like what's in your briefcase. And it was a, you know, it was an eye-opening moment. And my wife's been good for a lot of eye-opening moments. I, I luckily hired somebody with more perspective than me, or I married somebody, or she would kill me if she heard me say that. Um, <laughs> so, so I came back and I called the recruiter and said, "I'm out." The recruiter was from Chicago. He, of course, like most good recruiters, flew in the next day to take me to dinner to save it because he's not getting paid unless I'm taking the job. So we went to a nice steakhouse in a pre, the Precinct Steakhouse, which may or may not still be there in Cincinnati. And he proceeded to tell me all the reasons why I need to take this job. And so in the process that I finally looked at him and said, hey, buddy, no offense, but I'm not taking this job. Like, I'm not, I'm, when I leave P&G, it's going to be for something I'm really passionate about. So to his credit, he kind of changed and said, let's talk about what you're passionate about. And almost every question he asked me, I had some sort of golf answer. You know, what do you do when you're not at work? Where do you find the most peace? Um, tell me about your family. Like when your family gets together and talks about stuff, how do those meetings go? Well, they were never meetings. They were always on a golf course with my family. I mean, I found out most things in life about, I had the birds and bees speech on a bleachers behind the ninth green at a public course in in (laughs) Naperville, Illinois. So to me, golf course was always kind of a religious place for me. It's where we really shared. And it's where I had worked as a kid. I was a caddy. I cut greens. I changed pins. I was what they called a bunker boy, you know, weeding and edging bunkers for a summer. Um, So right then, I remember he took a bunch of notes and he left and I thought, well, I'll never see that guy again. And about eight months later, he called me and said, Wilson is looking for out of their golf glove and golf ball business. The CEO of Wilson was a Unilever guy, which is very similar to P&G, and he'd like to talk to you. So that same guy that flew into town to try to sell me, I said, no way. My wife was right. I was wrong. All of those bad experiences turned into my first big experience to really do follow a passion of mine, 
that to your point led from Wilson to TaylorMade. And while I was at TaylorMade, we got bought by Adidas. So I got this incredible run in the golf and sporting good business that I, I'm not sure I would have had if I didn't have some smart people around me that helped me from sort of going out of bounds with my tee shot. But I, um, but that's sort of how I got out of P and G and got into something very different. Yeah. And to your point, uh, just about marrying the right person, this is something that came up in my last interview as well um, with Bobby Slattery, who founded a brewing company in Cincinnati. But he talks about his life journey and about how his wife kept him on the right path and was the supporting arm that he needed through all the difficult times. And when he needed to spend time away from family, you know, she was willing to, not not that she didn't have her own career. She worked, I think he said she worked at Deloitte. So very busy herself, but was able to kind of um, pick up the slack when when he needed her to. And I think that's a point I just kind of want to highlight that is so important a lot, especially for people who make it to such high levels of success is to surround themselves with the right people, especially someone as important as your spouse. Yeah. I, I, I mean, just the fact of the matter is you can't be your best for your team if you're not if you're not in a good place in your own mental space, I mean, same is true of golf. Like I always tell people, if you're looking for who to bet before you're around, find the guy or the girl on the range who just got in a fight with their boyfriend or husband, that person's going to collapse today on the golf course because you just can't focus on golf when you feel like you've done something wrong on the home front. And for me, um, I don't think I could be the kind of teammate that I'd want to be if I, if I wasn't the kind of teammate at home that I'd want to be. So um, knowing that, a lot of people say that out loud, but they don't do anything about it. I mean, they believe that. I think they even say it out loud, and they, you know, they they think it's a they think it's a driving principle. But then you ask yourself, you know, would you leave the office at, at three thirty to go be part of your kids' parent teacher conference? You know, if your wife was doing a you know a, a recital somewhere at six o'clock, and you had a custom customer call, would you be comfortable changing the customer call because it's your wife's recital? If the answer to those things are no, you're on your way to a crash course of failure anyway. It's just a matter of time. You know, it's just like having yeah. a bad back. Like you're going to have surgery. Um, it's just going to come in a painful way, and it might mean you know separation or a bad job or, you know. So I always tell my team like. I need you when we're together to be your best. If to be your best, you got to go watch your son's Pop Warner football game Tuesday at 2 o'clock. Go watch your son's Pop Warner football game. Life and business take care of themselves in, in weird hours. So um, my, my, my office would tell you there is no way anybody in my office would say Mike's the hardest working guy in the company. No way. I'm never at, I'm never at my desk after 6 o'clock at night. Two reasons. One, I don't want to be there. I mean, that's just yeah. not where I want to spend my evenings. And two is if I'm there, everybody else is there. Because, you know, it's just the way it is in business. So if I leave at 5.45, as my assistant tells me all the time, everybody else has gone by 6.15. I said, that's exactly how it should work. You know, because they're not going to be good for me at a 9.30 meeting if they were there at 9.30 p.m. I get it. A couple of times you're in a crunch, you got to do crazy things. But um, people who think they can live a life of that diet are not going to like their life when they sit down and really think about the diet. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it sounds to me, I mean, the way that you're explaining it right now, it sounds to me like you have it pretty well figured out. And obviously everybody's kind of still learning as they go, even at 55. But if you if you look back and you think to yourself, obviously we've highlighted some of the challenges, but have there been sacrifices that you've kind of noticed that you either wish you hadn't made or wish that you had made as you look at such a successful career and such a decorated resume of being a executive vice president of some of these big companies? Well, sacrifices are, you know, are a given. I mean, if you, you know, if you want to, if you want to see how far you can go, um, you can't put the asterisks on that and say, but never leave Dayton, Ohio, or I want to see how yeah. far I can go, but I never want to not be an accountant. Well, that's not saying how far you can go. That's just saying, you know, this is my lane and I'll drive in it. Um, but if you want to see how far you can go, uh, sat, you, get, you know, sacrifices are part of the game. So are, so are colossal failures, right? I mean, I always tell people, you know, I mean, in one one of my principles for the company is celebrate your mistakes, you know, because the only way to really get better, I mean, if you want to be a better batter, you're, sort, you're going to strike out a few times. I'm um, standing there with the bat on your shoulder. It's not going to make you better batter. You might get the first base once in a while, but it's not going to make you better hitter. So uh, you got to celebrate making, I mean, I've, I say to my, our young interns all the time, in a perfect world, you'll get fired once in your career, at least once, right? In a, in a perfect world, you'll have enough gumption to take enough of a risk or to just walk away from a company that you know doesn't share your values. Um, and maybe you'll be able to walk away. Maybe they'll ask you to leave. I mean, I've been fired. It's not, um, it, it wasn't the end of the world, my life. It might have felt like that at the time. It's made exactly. me a better executive. It's made me better at letting other people go because that's part of life. Um, and it's made it more important for me that if I'm, uh, if I'm going to go hard at something, I got to believe in the cause. I got to believe in the people I'm doing it with. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've, you know, I've, you know, I've, I remember sitting at my son's fifth grade show and tell one time we were in California and he said, I'm Austin Juan. 
I'm in the fifth grade and I've been to four different schools in my life. And nobody else in that classroom had been to any other school than the school they were in. They were all born and raised in Southern California. And I remember thinking, that's not true. And then we were, I was driving home going, my God, he's been to four schools in his life. Like, and I didn't think he cared. He was a young kid. You know, who cares? He's a one first grader. But he was counting. And he, you know, it did matter to him. And um, that's a sacrifice, you know, my son made, my wife certainly made, you know, to follow dad's career. Um, it's funny when I, uh, way off the topic, Chris, but when I literally got the offer from the LPGA, I, I sent a really heartfelt email to the entire board and turned the job down. It was a really long email. I wrote it and I just said, listen, I think this could be my dream job. I would love to do this. I'm a golf guy my whole life. I'd love to give back to the game. Everything about the job excites me, including the people. I love the fact that you're struggling right now with going global. I know that business. But I can't, I, I, I can't imagine that there is a tombstone on any grave that reads, here lies a great commissioner and a great father. I, I got to believe they say one or the other. Because this is a job that I'm going to travel every week, all around the world. It's, you know, it's all in as a commissioner of a sport. And my kids are too young. Like when I looked around at the commissioner of other sports, they were all 55. They're my age now, not 44, when I was going to do it. And I said, I hope in 10 or 15 years when you're looking for the next commissioner, you'll call me when my kids are in college and don't care what dad does. But I had a sixth grader, seventh grader, and a sophomore in high school at the time when I was interviewing with him. So I hit send. And I remember saying to my wife, I'm going for a drive. And she goes, you don't go for a drive. And I said, today, I'm going for a drive. Like, I just hit no on something I really wanted to do. Yeah. And then the next day, nobody on the board but a former commissioner of the LPGA and a guy from Cincinnati named Charlie Meacham, who used to be the head of Taft Communication, um, called me and said, Mike, I was commissioner in the 90s. And one of your board members called me and asked me to call you. And they said, uh, talk to me about why you turned the job down. So I told them what was in the memo. He had clearly read the memo. And he said, it's funny, Mike, I Googled you before I called you. And there was an article, somebody wrote in some article. And in that article, you said, the most important thing as a father you want to give to your kids is the guts to follow their dreams. And I probably told them the same undecided story I told you. I said, yeah, I want my kids to, because everybody wants to tell you, including dads, I'm sure, I'm sure I've done this to my kids, you know, here's the safe route. And, you know, why wouldn't you do this? But I hope my kids have enough have enough comfort to either not follow what their dad thinks, not follow what the professor thinks and follow what they're, what they think. And he said, well, Mike, that's an interesting thing. He said, let me tell you something. Cause when your kids are still pretty young and they probably listen to what you say and you're still the dad, because at some point your kids are going to be 19, 20, 21, and they're not going to care what you say. And I said, are you telling me like kids don't listen to you? He said, no, no, they're going to care. They're only going to care what you do. You're going to say, don't text and drive, but they're going to say to themselves, I've seen him text and drive 50 times. Like they know what you do and they've, they, they will have since crossed out what you say and only follow what your actions are. And I said, interesting fatherhood tip, but what does this have to do with the LPGA? And he said, if you want your kids to have the guts to follow their dream jobs, you better lead by example. And I mean, actually, I actually had goosebumps as I tell you the story because I remember that moment like it was yesterday. And he said, if, if you think your kids' dream careers are going to happen in their life exactly when and where and how they should you don't know, you're not that old yet because reality of it, great opportunities never come when you want them. You don't have kids when you can afford them. You don't buy a house when you're ready to buy a house. Like you have to take some leaps. And he said, you know, dream jobs come when you least expect it in places you don't want to move with um, titles that you never experienced. And he said, if you want your kids, he said, I promise you, you take this job. Your kids are watching and you're going to take some sacrifice, but you're going to go do something that you're truly passionate about. And they're going to watch that. And I got to tell you, 11 years later, that is so true. Like my kids know that I love what I do. They know that I took a lot of sacrifice to do it. And um, I think they're pretty comfortable uh, pursuing what they're going to, what they're going to be loving. And a couple of them already have loving, like, even if this is things dad didn't say to do, in fact, they're not pursuing things dad's told them to do. And it, I have to remind myself every once in a while, that's the coolest part. Even though as a dad, you, you kind of want to have complete control. Right. So yeah, it's a long answer to your story, but it's, um, uh, sacrifice is part of the game. And if you really want to see how far you can go, uh, the good stuff's never going to come when you're ready for it. Yeah, no. And I think, I think it's a great answer. Um, and I really appreciate the answer because that there's so much in there that is really important, especially for people uh, my age and maybe even a little bit younger uh, to hear. But I think it is when you think about sacrifice, it really is such a balancing act because you have to figure out there's so many different pieces, right? And when you take a step back and you think about all the people that are impacted by your sacrifice, you really have to make sure that it's the right thing. And it's hard to figure out if it's the right thing because you get so comfortable doing uh, or being in one area or in one place in your life. And it's important to remember that 
in order to grow and to provide the best example or lesson for your kids or the people around you, being comfortable taking that step into discomfort is really important because otherwise, you know, you're almost bound to stay in the same place in your life and and not really make the progress that that's necessary in order to to live a fulfilling life, to provide the best opportunity for your kids, for your wife, um, whatever it may be. I'll never forget one of my favorite phone calls of all time is when my oldest went to he went to TCU in, in Fort Worth. And he'd been there about a month and I was driving home from the office and I called him and said, Hi Austin, how's it going? Yes. He was he was clearly in a good space. And I said, It seems like you're meeting friends and you're finding a new home. And he said, Dad, meeting friends here is so easy. And I said, What do you mean it's easy? Because I went to college. Like it's not that easy. And he goes, you know, we moved a lot as a kid. You probably remember that. I mean, that's my kid, but he's very sarcastic that way. And I'm like, yes, what's your point? And he goes, you know, every time I walked into as the new kid in school, everybody else had friends. Like nobody needed new friends. So you'd kind of have to work your way into a new friendship group. And he said, when you come to college, nobody has friends and everybody needs friends. So everybody's the new kid in school. So everybody's looking to get to know somebody else and everything else. He said, this is a snap relative to what you put me through growing up. And again, I mean, I Sometimes you just justify what you did to your children. But I was thinking to myself, you know, he's going to be just fine because the lessons of the of the sacrifices he was making for me are are, are coming true in his life. Like he's 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 a comfortable kid in any situation because he's been in any situation since he was a kid. So yeah, and it is it's great to hear that perspective because obviously, you know, for myself personally, I'm on I'm on the other side of it, right? I'm on the side of your son kind of looking at their parents and making these decisions and going through life. And even just in my job now, I'm facing a lot of different challenges and trying to figure out if I should stay for a certain period of time or if I should do different rotations in, in the same place or if I should go and venture out and do something new. And it's it's kind of tough for me personally. I was in the same city my whole life and I went to I went to college in Cincinnati. I took a job in Cincinnati after school and it's been a time of real reflection for me, especially with such weird times with the coronavirus and the lockdowns and everything, just trying to figure out what my step, my next step in life is. So it is, it's great to hear that perspective. If you think, if you think back to your probably greatest learning periods in your life, it's probably when things were just a little uncomfortable relative to, but the greatest learning periods in your life probably won't come um, in Cincinnati, when you're going to the same supermarket and the same, you know, same places and the same ballparks that you go, it's going to come when you find yourself, you know, scared to death in Kansas City or something and in a job you're not sure you can do. I mean, people have asked me many times, like, why did you take the commissioner's job? I said, because the fear of failure was the greatest of any alternative I had. Like the, the, op- the opportunity to fail as the commissioner of the LPGA uh, isn't too far-fetched. Like, you know, it's, it's like being a head coach in football. Like you're going to fail just a matter yeah. of what year. One, one day you'll come in and the name on the office has changed. You might be the last to know. Um, that, to me, that is a, uh, that's the most exciting part of the gig, right? I mean, it's, it's hard. Um, it's uh, it's going to require you to be a better leader than you were yesterday. And, um, and there's no, there's no, there's nobody to follow. Like I can't pick up the phone and call many of my friends and tell them the situation I'm facing. And then they'll go, Oh yeah. I had the similar thing a couple of years ago because, because the commissioner thing isn't like anything else. And so it's a pretty, it's a pretty unique um, world, but that, that's what, it's, it's what excites me about it is that it's, um, you know, the, the size of the cliff you're walking along the edge of is pretty significant. And I'm not sure I'd be, I'd be as alive if I was 40 yards in from the cliff, you know? Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. I think it's Tim Ferriss who says to measure your fears, uh, not your goals. And obviously, you know, maybe it's different for everybody, but his whole point there is to say you can measure your goals and you can make your goals fit your comfort level in life, you know, as much as you want. But when you sit down and you really think about what scares you or where you don't want to end up and you have to say, okay, well, how can I avoid that? A lot of times, the way to avoid something like that is to be completely uncomfortable, to take the actual leap that you're afraid to take, because that'll get you to a place where, you know, not only are you closer to your goals, but you're not going to look back in 20, 30, 40 years and say, wow, you know, I I wish I would have done that because a lot of people's biggest fear is, is regret either whether it's doing something or not doing something. So. Yeah. I I always tell people, I always tell our youngest employees that um, uh, assess the impact of what you think you failed at exactly one year later. And don't even think about it for a year Um, because most of your greatest advancements are going to come from your most significant failures. But when you're in the failure moment, you know, everything, everything about you wants to just go back to what you know and what's safe. You know, somebody promoted you to a job you're not very good at and you just say, just put me back in the other job. I was good there. And, you know, I knew what I was doing. That's great. But um, if you wait a year and before you make that assessment, you'll almost always go, 
man, I never would have had these skills or had these opportunities if I went back to that thing. So, you know, I've had some colossal failures in my life, but if I wait a year to really grade them, they've all led to incredible up, upsides, you know, including colossal failures as a commissioner. I mean, it's an easy job. You fail a lot. As I always tell my kid, the difference about being a commissioner and being a CEO is um, you get to read about all your mistakes. Just Google your name and you'll be able to read about all the things you did wrong because people like to write about sports and they like to write about the, the, the 100% of executives. Yeah. So I said, the good news for me is I'll just try to hold off on reading the recap until a year later because the reporter that writes about it next week, that's just a cool story and the headlines juicy. But a year later, when they're writing about something that you really nailed, generally speaking, there's five or six key principles that got you there that came out of the failure. Um, and you never would have gotten to the real big, the big thing without a few failures along the way. Right. Yeah. And it is really difficult in the moment to see that, right? Because like you've said, hindsight's twenty twenty, and yeah. it is like you feel completely engulfed in this challenge. And uh, it's difficult to take a step back and look at things objectively when you're in such a difficult situation, but it almost always is worth it. So no one thing that I read about before we sat down together was the fact that you wrote a book and I, I didn't get a whole lot of detail on it, but maybe you want to kind of talk about that. That may be good. So when I was in 2009, Christmas of 2008, we sold, I was a CEO of a hockey equipment company and we sold that. We actually, I went to buy Bauer from Nike. Um, Nike was selling the Bauer business. We were number three. They were number one. I was going to put three and one together, make a big business. So I went to Boston to, to bid on the company and in the bidding process, I got outbid by and then we were all in different rooms or so like I was in salon C and somebody else was in salon G and we we're bidding all day through an arbitrator. And at the end of the day, the arbitrator came into me and said, sorry, because he would tell you that there's, there's down to four bidders. You're down to three. And I was down to two bidders. So at the end, I got outbid and I, you know, I got kind of bummed out. I went back to my hotel room, went to dinner, came back from, from dinner and then the light was flashing in my hotel room. And the guy that did buy the company had left me a message and said, listen, Mike, I was in salon G or whatever. And so I'm the one who just bought Bauer today, but I'm very interested in Mission Itech, your company, and could we have breakfast tomorrow? So I had breakfast before I flew home and at breakfast, they made an offer to buy our company. So like, you know, really weird thing happened. You went to Boston to buy a company, ended up selling yours. Right. So it was um, Christmas of 2008. Um, I told my wife, you know, this, this is interesting that my wife gets in this a lot, but I told my wife, I'm going to make you three promises. And once we sold the company, we didn't make a ton of money, but we made a little bit of money. So I said, number one, uh, I'm not going to work for a year. You know, I'm going to take a year off because I mean, I just, I, I need a break. Um, and then I'll get back into it. I said, but, but, but when I get back to work, two things I'll promise to you, I'll never make you leave Southern California. Cause I know you love living here in Southern California. This is, you know, this is really where we consider home now. This is where we'll raise our kids. Obviously I live in Orlando now. And the second thing is um, whatever we do next for both of us, I won't travel as much as I used to because the, because in the hockey business, we had a company in South Southern California, we had a company in Montreal, a little business in Toronto. Like I was, flying to Canada almost every other week. So of course now I'm at the LPGA where I travel 50 weeks out of 52 weeks a year in non-COVID times. So be careful what you promise your wife. But I sort of made these, these, uh, these promises of, you know, that's kind of, that's what we're going to do. And, um, and uh, so sold the company, found myself, you know, unemployed for a while. And uh, I went to uh, my youngest um, had a, uh, I don't know, meet the parents night or something. I forget what it was, but he was in like third grade, fourth grade. Meet the parents. So one of the, you had to introduce your parents. And uh, my wife wasn't there, but I was there. So I'm sitting in the back. My son introduces me. I'm very proud. I sit back down. And the one kid gets up and introduces his dad. His dad writes children's books. And um, it was really cool. He was a good guy. We're driving home and my son's in the back seat. And he says, hey, dad. I'm like, yeah, Connor. And he said, how cool would it be if your dad wrote books? Like, that's really cool. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I was a CEO at 35. Like, you know what I mean? Does my, does my kid not get that and like he couldn't he wouldn't be able to tell you what ceo stands for but um he was just all into i mean imagine being an author like a book that lasts forever with your name on it. like he was just going on so we're laying in bed that night with my wife and i looked at her and i said i gotta tell you about connor and driving home like he was so over the head i said i could write a book and she goes oh of course you could kind of like any good wife was and rolls right. over and i'm like she didn't exactly. think, she didn't think i could write a book either <laughs> and um so my mind just started racing about writing a book and here's a great example of you know mistakes turning into so I'm driving my middle son to hockey the next day. Hockey rink is 45 minutes away, and I'm, I have speeding problems on the highway. I, I drive like I talk. So I get pulled over for speeding. I get to the driving to the rink, and one of the other fathers is a State Farm rep. He's my insurance rep. So I said, hey, buddy, bad news. I just got another ticket. He's like, Mike, you've got to stop getting speeding tickets. Like, you're killing me <laughs> on insurance. He said, now that you're out of a job, you need to go to traffic school and just knock off some points from your license. 
So I said, that's fine. I mean, I got, I got eight hours. I can go to driving school. So I go to Anaheim, California, and I sit in this classroom with 100 people just so I could take two points off my, my license. Um, and this retired cop walks in. He was from Pico Rivera, California, and he sat down in the front of the table. And for seven and a half of the eight hours, he told us stories, cop stories. I mean, really incredible. Whether they were true or not, I don't know, but incredible cop stories. And after one of them, I started outlining a, man, that's an amazing story. I wonder how a guy... I wonder how a cop gets to that position. I wonder how the, the, the victim gets to that position. I wonder how the criminal got to that position in their life. And I started writing a, a book. Um, and I wrote about the first three chapters, and I tried to mail it to the cop. Um, he never returned my emails or my calls. And I called the, the, the traffic school, and they said, I know he's received your emails, but, you know, if he hasn't returned your call, there's nothing we can do about it. So I don't know if he didn't like the idea I was writing it or if he made it up. I don't know. But I ended up writing the whole book, and it's a whole – it's a – I call it a story based loosely on based loosely on a true story because I think it's a true story. Um, he just told us the end. We, we, he told us about how he arrested this person and how the trial ended. And I yeah. just thought it was such an incredible story that I started them. Um, I, I call it the book's called Thirty Nine Days, and each chapter is one of the thirty nine days in the in the in the life of this you know of this arrest. And uh, yeah, it has nothing to do with business. Has nothing to do with being a leader or teammates or anything else. It's just a real um, fun it was a you know it was, it was something i really felt i had to do so i got a book I published a book showed my kid he could have cared less of course Six that's what later, i was gonna so, yeah he could that's what know. i was gonna ask is he how connor felt he about didn't it remember the guy whose dad was writing children <laughs> but i'm glad i did it it was one of those things i told myself as a kid i would do i think i will do it again when i, when I, when I find myself out of work again which will happen at some point and it was uh, it was therapeutic it was uh, i dove into yeah. something that i really didn't know how to do um and it was it was fun i didn't i didn't um I didn't have any coach, you know, so right. I think the second one would be better than the first one, which would, would be an easy base. I'm not so sure the first one's very good, but it was fun to write. Yeah. So if you, th- if you're right, if you're going to write another book, you think it'll be something more along the lines of business or your, your story, or do you think it'll be something unrelated again? I think if I wrote a business book, I would have somebody else write it and I just do what I'm doing with you. I just talk and let them write. Um, okay. Because I mean, I, I feel better talking about business than writing about business. Now I'm a, I'm a reader. Um, and I like, um, I like whodunits. I like, you know, I like, you know, criminal novels and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I would probably write another one like that just because at the end of the day, you know, maybe 300 people will read my book. So the only person that's important that I write it for is me. So I'd write right. something that really, that I really get excited about. Okay. I got you. Yeah. And I know you're busy and I don't want to take up too much time for you. So just the last couple of questions I, I think I have, or, and this is one that I've, I've asked the last couple of guests as well. And I always frame it maybe a little bit differently, but in your case, your dad always kind of sat you down at the at the end of a day and said, "What's one thing you learned or liked about today? You didn't like. What's one thing you learned?" If you had to do that now, but you kind of look back and reflected on your entire career, because I know one thing we didn't talk about a lot, but you kind of touched on was um, your tenure at Mission iTech, and you acquired a company and you sold a company, and so you've really had a well versed career. You've been in a lot of different positions and done a lot of great things. So if you kind of look back, whether it's on a personal note, a professional note. What would you say is one thing you liked, disliked, and, and learned from your career? Um, that's great. I mean, no one's ever asked me the questions I asked them. So that's that's kind of interesting in terms of my, my kids don't turn around and ask the questions back to me. But um, I think I think I've liked the most um, two things. I mean, one, uh, I married somebody who's a better human being than I am. And um, you're going to spend your life with somebody. You're going to become more like that person, whether you want to or not. So find somebody that if you morph into more of them than you, that you'll be better than you were, not not worse. And so I married a better human being than, than I am. And as a result, I'm a better human being. I'm not her, but I'm at least closer than I was before I met her. Um, and then, and I, I think I would like the fact that I was willing to take chances. I mean, I, I, um, I, wasn't a, I was afraid uh, to take chances, but I didn't let the fear stop me from, uh, from making them. Um, uh, one of the things I'd, I'd, probably, I'd probably want to change, it took me – I mean, I actually remember the, the month. It took me until I was 33 years old um, to have perspective about what it meant to be a great father and a great business person. Um, I was pretty committed to being a great business person, even as I had kids. It took me a while before I realized that um, it's more important now that I was a great dad than I was a great business leader. I'm not sure that was true when I was 30. You know, I was, yeah. uh, I was having kids, but I was really committed to being a great business person. And um, I wish that had happened faster. I remember the month when the light bulb went off but I don't, um, but I'm not proud of the fact that it took me until I was 32, 33 years old when it, when it went off. Um, and what I've learned is, um, is that people are watching, um, more than they're listening. And so if you, um, 
if you if you want to create a culture, you better live the culture. You can't talk about the culture. You can't write about the culture. You can't create regulations to build the culture. You can't build an employee handbook and think, wow, there's our culture. Um, if you want to create a great culture, if you want to create a winning culture, um, then walk around, talk around, and act like a winner. Treat others like they're winning. Um, and if you know if you feel like there's people keeping you from being a winning culture, move on for them and for you. But um, I think I've just learned that uh, that the visual is so much more important than the written. And I think when you're young, they you know like in my case at Procter and Gamble, they really teach you how to write. You know, they really teach you how to write a powerful memo and you know get a recommendation approved and write a write a proposal for buying a company. But um, as you get older, it really won't matter what you wrote. It'll matter what you say, how you said it, and whether or not you really believe it. And um, as, uh, as one of my good mentors from Procter & Gamble used to say, um, there's two kinds of business leaders. There's the kind that, um, that really think the job is over when the contract gets sold. And there's the kind that really think the job hasn't started until the contract gets sold. And they're generally one or the other, whether they like it or not, whether they'll admit it or not, yeah. decide which one you're going to be. Because I've been around a ton of people that um, their goal was to get the deal done. And if your goal is to get the deal done, that's great, but you're going to be in the way from then on. And if you can be the kind of person whose goal it is to make sure that the deal you did is a home run, um, I think you're going to have a lot more success and you're going to be a happier person because deals getting done come and go. And they're sort of false excitement. Closing of a company, selling a business, getting hired on a job, those are nice highs, but they don't last very long. Right. The real high is after I get hired by this job and I achieve what I said I want to achieve, um, and you think those, those achievements are meaningful to you, that stuff lasts a long time. I mean, way after when you leave the company. I'm really proud of some of the thumbprints I've left in some of the businesses I've been in. Even if they're not, I am. And I'm much more proud of that than a job I got, than the bonus I got, than the stock option I cashed. Um, those things just come and go. You don't really remember those when you're 55. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And again, it's great to hear that from somebody who's actually lived it and who can say that very confidently as they kind of reflect backwards, because I know people, I've touched on it before, but people in my position who are looking forward, it's really difficult to be able to, I don't want to say it's delayed gratification, but you know, if you're looking at turning down, uh, kind of like you did with the the colleague of yours who left P&G and started their own company, to be able to look at an opportunity like that and say, this is what it's going to pay. This is what, you know, what you're going to do. This is your title. But to have that conversation like you did with your wife and say, well, am I really going to be happy down the road if I do something like that? I, I would tell you, I would just tell anybody in their twenties, um, don't get so hung up about what you're doing when you're 20, just get started doing something. It will yeah. lead to the things you're really excited about. I mean, if you can find the, the dream job for a 22 year old, great. I mean, my son got out of law school, got the dream job he wanted at the law firm he wanted to go to. That's great. That's yeah. rare, but that's great. But as I told him, I'll be blown away at 30 if that's what you're doing. It's okay. I mean, if that's what you're doing, great. So you're going to look back and go, that was a great place to start and to learn and to live. Um, and I would just say to most, most 55 year olds would say, you know what? Getting started was more important than how, where, or when I got started. Just get started. Get into something. You'll, you'll either learn that you hate it or that you love it or some version in the middle, which is where 90% will fall. I really like this part about the job. I hate that part about the job. And you'll start thinking about how do I do something that's more in line with the stuff as a part of the job. And you'll be floored by the part of the job that you actually love. It might be the stuff you thought when you were 15 you'd hate. You know what I mean? I, you know, some of the stuff I really get a kick out of doing is the stuff I never would have thought I'd get a kick out of doing when I was 20. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's just, just not that way. So um, I think people spend way too much time worrying about their first job or even their second job. Um, get started, get working, get interacting with people, you know, start figuring out what your strengths and weaknesses are, decide if those weaknesses bother you and if you want to go fix them, or if quite frankly, that just means you don't want to work in a business where those weaknesses are, are glaring, but you'll yeah. never find that stuff out in a class. You'll never find that stuff out while you're looking for a job. You'll never find that stuff out trying to write your objective statement of a resume. That stuff happens in life. So I would just tell people, you know, get, get going. And it's okay if the first three years of your life, you hate everything about what you do. That's a humongous learning opportunity. If you love everything about what you do in the first three months, you're actually learning less than the guy who hates it. And um, so it's really, um, it's, it's really oversold. You know, it's just like picking a school. Listen, I wanted to go to Princeton. Princeton didn't want Mike Wan. You know, when I was 19, that seemed like the most bone crushing experience of my life. Um, yep. Today, thank God I went to Miami, Ohio and what it led to and everything else. So it's, um, 
it's funny. We just we all put way too much pressure on what happens when you're young. You know, the only thing you're trying to do when you're young is get confident and get educated. And if you can do yeah. that, and both of those two things can happen, everything else sort of takes care of itself. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm definitely guilty of putting too much pressure on it. And I know plenty of my friends and plenty of people that I surround myself with are kind of worried about some of those same things. And that's why we get such a kick out of uh, sitting down with people like yourself and being able to hear these stories. So I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Um, and as we kind of wrap up, I just want to present the opportunity for you to kind of talk about any exciting things that the LPGA has going on in the future or any of your goals as you kind of look forward and um, enter in sort of the latter half of your career. Well, the best thing about the LPGA is, you know, when I look back to 11 years ago and today, almost everything we're doing is up over 80 to 100 percent. Right. I mean, we play for. You know, we play for 75% more tournaments. We play for 90% more purse money. We play for uh, 500% more television hours in, in uh, you know, in 200% more countries. Um, you know, we introduce 1,000% more girls a year to the game than we were introducing just back in 2010. And, That's incredible. Uh, so I always tell people at the, at, at, the, at the LPGA, you know, think of this as a relay race. And right now the baton's in our hand. You know, somebody gave it to us 10 years ago and there's somebody standing at the line when we get tired and when we start running out of juice, our job is to first recognize you're running out of juice and get the baton in somebody else's hand. So then the question is, when the relay race is over, you know, what what are people going to remember about you when you had it in your hand? And if your answer is we put on a really good tournament or we grew viewership by 20 percent one year, like that's that's going to be shallow for you and shallow for me. So the question is, when we give the baton to the next person, what did we do? Uh, in this game we love. And I've, I've, I've said this to the players that, you know, that play with and for me. I've said this to the staff too. We're going to be remembered as the group that changed the face of the game. You know, when for a hundred years, when you track golf, 85% of the golf was men and 15% was women. And it's looked like that. And it's 80% white. It's looked like that forever. Yeah. Um, if you look at the future of the game today, which is players playing the game under the age of 16, uh, only one third of that group is white male. Two thirds isn't. 37, 38% of that group is women. So when you jump forward 10 or 15 years, there'll be more women, there'll be more diverse faces playing this game than ever before. And of all the things that we can be really proud of, when we had the baton in our hand, we really changed what this sport looked like and what it felt like. And we made it look and feel more like what the rest of the world looks and feels like. It isn't there today, but it's under the age of 16. So it's coming. I always tell people like, if you don't like women playing golf, get over it because we're coming and we're coming in big numbers. And, uh, and I'm really proud of that. Golf tournaments, successes, launches, TV, all that stuff aside, it's great. I'm proud of all those things. But I'm most proud of the fact that we've changed what this sport's going to look like for the next 50 years. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. It really is. And those are, I mean, every stat that you laid out there is is impressive, but I think that's definitely the most profound. So that's great. Um, and I, again, I, I kind of said, we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up here and I'll, I'll let you get back to your, your job because like I've kind of mentioned a couple of times, I know you're busy, but I really do want to, make it very clear that I, I'm super grateful for the time that you took. And I think that these lessons are incredible. I really enjoy sitting down and having these conversations um, and the lessons that you're able to to portray to me, but also the people who are going to listen to this, I think are invaluable, especially c- coming from somebody in, in a position like yours. So thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. I enjoyed my time. All right. I'll Take talk care. to you soon. You, got it. you too.